Thanks for tuning in to the Crew at UGA podcast. We are so glad to have you with us. Crew exists to call students to know God, grow in their faith, and go to the world. If you would like to get more connected with Crew at UGA, or if we can help you in any way at all, go to the show notes and click on the link, or follow us on Instagram at Crew at UGA. All right, let's get started. Well, it's a wet Tuesday. I'm in a busy part of the semester with lots of tests and stuff going on, and I'm really thankful and happy to see you guys here at Crew tonight, and then would love to welcome you. I'm glad you're here. If you haven't been here before and you don't know who I am, my name's Alan, and I'm one of the leaders here at Crew, and we are uh, we're in one of my favorite times of the semester, actually, because of what we are talking about at Crew on Tuesday nights. I don't know if you... Um, if you've been around crew for a long time, eventually you'll start to see we, we kind of fall into these patterns um, where in the beginning of the semester, we'll come together in these meetings and we'll kind of do some exciting, provocative topics that are kind of hype and people kind of curious and interested about it. And sometimes we talk about Christian living and then other times in the middle of the semester, we might address some sort of deeper aspect of our faith. But typically by the end of the semester... We're kind of settling into being here together, and there's lots of tests. And you know what we really want to do is we just want to kind of come together and open the Bible and just talk about it. And that's kind of what we do. So we kind of end the semester usually going through a book of the Bible, and that's what we're doing now. We're actually going through First Peter, which is a, a small letter or epistle near the end of the New Testament. And um, we're going to be doing that for five weeks. This is week number two. And... and uh, we want to just open the Bible and dwell there. And that's kind of what we do when we get to this point in the semester, typically in crew, is we want to come together and we just want to open the Bible and see what it says and just let it speak to us. Now, if you are uh, kind of new here, I, I don't know all of your spiritual backgrounds. I know there's someone new here because there's someone new here every week because I typically meet somebody new here every week. And if you're here as a guest, welcome. If you just came with a friend, welcome. I'm glad you're here. And I don't know what your spiritual background is, but maybe if you're just kind of seeing a group of these God squad people for the first time, um, I'll just tell you, you know, so we as Christians, we have the Bible and we think it's really important. And we think it's a great gift of God because it gives us direction for our life. It tells us about our world that's around us. But most importantly, it tells us about God, who he is, what he's like, what he likes and doesn't like, what his character is, how he treats us, the things we need to know. It's a revelation. And so we will open it and listen to it and submit ourselves to it and hear it and let it change us. And that's kind of what we're doing tonight as we open First Peter. So we just invite you to do that with us. And we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, Kyler got up here last week, gave a great introduction to 1 Peter that was very thorough and kind of set up the whole book. I'm not going to repeat all that. Um, you can go listen to it on the podcast if you weren't here and you want to hear it. Um, but the theme that we're doing is Stand Firm. Stand Firm is kind of the title. And this comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, which we haven't gotten to yet because it's near the end. But the verse is 1 Peter 5.12. It says, This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And the reason that that is so important and the reason that's kind of a theme for the whole book that Peter comes back to repeatedly is, as Kyler talked about last week, the people he's writing to in Asia Minor at this time 
in the first century are a people that are experiencing a persecution. At this point in history, under the Roman Empire, persecution was uh, somewhat sporadic. Um, There was not a full-scale pogrom going on against all Christians across the empire at this point. And so Peter is speaking to a people that, that are experiencing lesser or greater persecution, but they're under pressure because they are the outsiders. And all the different religions that are in the Roman Empire, the Christians are considered this wacky sect. And they also receive hostility because of it. Later, that hostility is going to become life-taking, lethal, fatal. At this point, it might not have been. At this point, it might have just been um, dishonor. It might have just been losing jobs. It might have been all kinds of different pressures. But, But whatever it was, it speaks to all of us who would in some way suffer for our faith in Christ. And so he says to this people, stand firm. This is the grace of God. This grace that you're in, this this faith that you're in, this community that you're in, this gift of God to know him. This is a gift of God. Stand firm in it, even when you feel pressure on it. And that's the message that just resonates through this whole book. And we are going to look at that a little bit more tonight. So there's a brief little recap of kind of where we are and what we're doing. So we are going to pick it up in chapter 2. In chapter 2, we get an idea which is kind of in the center of the book. And it's this. Peter talks about who we are as believers or who God has made us. And who we are also determines the way we're treated. And it also determines how we respond. Who we are determines how we are treated. And it determines how we respond. So who are we? And what is our purpose? And how are we going to respond to it? That's a little bit we're going to learn tonight as Peter writes to us. So I'm going to pick it up in chapter 2. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to, to open it up to 1 Peter 2 because I'm not going to read every verse in the chapter. And as we go along, you might want to be looking at some of the verses that are in between or later and just kind of see the context because I don't have time to do every verse tonight. But I'm going to be reading a section. If you don't have a Bible, totally fine. The words are going to be on the magic screen up here. And here's what they say. Starting with verse 1, the very beginning of 2. It says, Therefore, referring back to the things we studied last week in chapter 1, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted the Lord is good. And now I'm going to skip down to verse 9. Where he goes on and he says this about us. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you. As aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Pray with me. Lord God, this is your word. And it is a gift to us. It is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. It is is light on a dark night. It is truth in the midst of lies and deception and confusion, and we welcome it. 
Holy Spirit, would you speak tonight through your word? As, as we read these words, would you help us to understand them? Would you help us to know the deep import of what they mean? Would you give us uh, a, a spirit of, of gladness and submission to them and hope in our response to them? That's what we ask you for tonight. And do that through me as much as you will. Amen. What does the world think of you? Don't answer that. Just think about it. It's rhetorical. What does God think of you? What does the world think of you? What does God think of you? Those two questions are going to swirl around this room tonight as we read this passage. And we've read some things in those words that we just read on the screen that talk about that. right? And part of this, I think you can kind of see the point. Peter is already telling us clearly that the world says we are one thing. Maybe rejected, shameful, worthy of persecution. But God thinks another. God thinks the opposite. And the point that we are going to look at as we look at these words tonight is this. We need to understand just who we are if we are to understand how we are supposed to live and respond. And the place we're going to do that is we are going to dwell really kind of in the center chunk of this chapter tonight, verses 9 through 12. These amazing verses that talk about the nature and purpose of the church, which is... Us, we, we are the church, not a building, us. And this church that God has created, who are we? And what's our purpose? It's my job tonight, in a very few minutes, to enable us to understand the momentous import of what these few sentences are saying. Um, and when I think about just the depth and the riches of everything that is contained in these sentences, that's kind of laughable to me, and yet... I think we can, I think. I think we can get deep enough into them to understand what they're saying. So here we are in this section, especially verses 9 through 12. And the first thing we need to understand is that Peter is making a statement about the church universal, all Christians. And that statement is this. We are what's called the people of God. Okay? Now, here's a question for you. Those of you who kind of come from a spiritual background or a Christian background, you ever been reading the Bible and you open up the Old Testament and you're reading along and there's all these things in the Old Testament and suddenly you get to some promise, like no good thing will he withhold from those whose walk is blameless um, or the Lord will rise to show you compassion. And you think, that's really wonderful. And then you realize, wait a minute, I'm in the Old Testament and this is Israel. Does this apply to me? You ever think about that? It, sometimes I think we just kind of read it and it's like, Bible, wonderful, which is great. That's what you should do. But do you ever think about that? Stop and think about, wait a minute, this is in the Old Testament. Does this really apply to me? How do I know? Well, who are the people of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Let me, let me help us get to this because this is where Peter speaks in this passage. I want to show you two passages, one from the Old Testament and one from the New that are going to be on the screen. Now, the first one is from Exodus 19. This is Moses speaking to the nation of Israel, an ethnic nation of Jewish people, although there were others blended into them. And here's what he says from the words of the Lord. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites, God tells Moses. He's talking about a relationship, covenant. It's this idea that there is this agreement or this joining that has happened between God and his people who are Israel. 
Do you see how he describes them? Now, let's read again the passage from 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do those sound familiar? Yeah, they do. See, Peter is not giving you an exact quote of this passage in Exodus in this section in chapter 2, but he knows what he's writing. Peter is echoing this passage from Exodus, which his Jewish readers certainly would have known. And what is he saying? He's using the same language that God spoke through Moses to his people, Israel in the Old Testament. Now God's speaking through him to his people, the church. We are the people of God. In the Old Testament, the people of God might have been an ethnic nation, the Jews. It might have been the Israelites. God chose this one people to kind of be a lamp, a city on a hill that everybody would see as representing him. But now, that people is not an ethnic people. It's a people of faith. Actually, it was always a people of faith. And Paul explains that quite well in Romans chapter 4. And you see this other places in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews is full of this. It's this idea that this church... The Greek word is ekklesia, is an assembly of people. It's the people of God altogether. Just as Israel was the Old Testament people of God, the church as a whole, including Israel and Gentiles, that would be us, non-Jewish people, we are the people of God now. So when you open the Old Testament and you read a promise there, it's for who? It's for the people of God. Well, who are the people of God? That'd be us. It's for you. Old Testament, New Testament. See, we are that. And that's what Peter is trying to get across to us. We are the people of God. We know him. We are his. We are claimed by him. And this is just one of the places that we clearly see it is right here in 1 Peter chapter 2. Okay? But here's what I want you to know. And this is where we're going to go deeper. I want you to pay very careful attention to how he describes the people of God. Okay? Because he says four things, four descriptions of us that are very, very important. And I'm going to put them right up there on the screen. Who are we? He says four things. We are a chosen race, or one of your generation, or translations might say a chosen generation, or a chosen group. We are a royal priesthood, number two. Number three, we are a holy nation. Number four, we are a people for God's own possession. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So when he says we're a chosen race or a chosen generation, what that means is we are special. And we have to understand the sense in which we're special. How am I going to do this? I'm going to get some help. So... In my humble opinion, the greatest English sermon that was ever preached or written about these verses in 1 Peter chapter 2 was written in 1741 by a man named Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan pastor in Massachusetts. And um, I'm sure that um, you are familiar with him in all the wrong ways because the only thing you know about Jonathan Edwards is he got one paragraph in your ninth grade English literature book in which they quoted some 
very uh, descriptive language from sinners in the hand of an angry God about you like being a spider hanging on a spider web over the flames. Do you remember that paragraph? And then that was like, see, Jonathan Edwards, he was a great writer. And then you went on and you studied Great Gatsby. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I am here to tell you Jonathan Edwards deserves way more mention than that. He was a great writer, hence being included in your English literature book. He was also probably the greatest philosopher that the nation of America or the, the, the country in North America has ever produced. He's a prolific writer and teacher. He was a godly pastor. And he, his works are some of the most in-depth works on Scripture that we have in the English language. And this sermon that he wrote on 1 Peter chapter 2 is brilliant. I'm going to give you, just like your English literature book, one paragraph out of this sermon, okay? It's going to be on the screen so you can follow along. But here in his 18th century language, this is what he says. Oh, it's so great. Those who are God's enemies and to whom he is an enemy are still his. But those who are his friends, his children, his jewels that compose his treasure are his in a very different manner. God has chosen the godly out of the rest of the world to be nearly related to him, to stand in the relationship of children, to have property in him, that they might not only be his people, but that he might be their God. He has chosen these to bestow himself upon them. He has chosen them from among others to be gracious to them and to show them his favor. He has chosen them to enjoy him, to see his glory and to dwell with him forever. He has chosen them as his treasure as a man chooses out gems from a heap of stones with this difference. The man finds gems and therefore he chooses, but God chooses them, therefore they become gems. What a paragraph. Do you see the way he describes being a chosen race? That God has chosen us. And yet, he did not choose us because we were so worthwhile and valuable. He chose us out of his love. And because he chose us, then we become worthwhile and valuable. Now, it's a great illustration of this once. I have a friend who now lives in Auburn University, but when I was living overseas in Asia a number of years ago, my friend lived in Thailand, his whole family. I think they had five kids. They were missionaries in Thailand, just this great family. But the wife, very compassionate. They would go volunteer at an orphanage, and once at this orphanage, they met this little girl, and uh, the wife got rather attached to her, and the husband was like, now... I don't, I don't want to do a whole lot with this little girl because I know what's going to happen here. You're going to fall in love with her. You're not going to be able to let her go. You're going to want to adopt her. Guess what? They fell in love with her. They wanted to adopt her. They did. So they adopted her, this, this uh, Thai orphan, and they named her Amber. And so she became their sixth child. And um, as Amber grew up in this family full of other children and was the only one that was different, was the only one that wasn't a white face. Of course, there was a lot of competition and different things like that. But they told this great story. So my friend Chip told this great story of one night they're sitting around the dinner table and the kids are going back and forth. And Amber looks at all the other brothers and sisters in the family and she says, I am special. Mom and dad just had you. You were just born, but they chose me. And I thought, what a great story about an orphan. But here's the thing. 
But he chose me. In Amber's mind, they chose her because she was special. But actually, Amber, Amber had a cleft palate. If you don't know what that is, it's a condition a lot of Asian children will have in which this upper part of their lip is split. It's hard to eat. It's hard to drink. A lot of times in Asia, babies like that are just abandoned to die. And this one, it ended up in an orphanage. They chose her and they brought her home, had surgery done, paid for her. They didn't choose Amber because she was so excellent. It was kind of like God choosing us. It was a choice of mercy and grace. That's how God chooses us. We tend to think that, oh, well, God chose me. I must be pretty special. No, in actuality, what Jonathan Edwards is saying and what Scripture says is God chooses us and that makes us special. God didn't choose us because we were so great. We were covered in sin. We were rebellious, turning our backs on him. There was nothing we had to recommend us to be chosen. And yet he chooses us. We are a chosen race. Do you know how God feels about you? Do you? Do you know how God feels about choosing you? I'm going to tell you. He likes it. He likes the fact that he has chosen you. And I know this. It's all over scripture. I'm going to show you some of my favorite passages that talk about how God feels about you, chosen people. Here's some that are going to be on the screen. Let me read some of these. Just let them wash over you. This is Psalm 149.4. It says, The Lord delights in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Isn't that a great word? Delight. Uh, I just love this verse. God delights in his people. Who are his people? We already did this. Yeah, us, right? Us, people of God. We already went over that like 10 minutes ago, right? Us. God delights in you. This is one of those Old Testament passages. Guess what? It applies to us. We're the people of God. God delights in his people. Delight is such a great word. That's not just like like. God likes you. No, I mean, I mean you can like your friends, but like if you delight in someone, you write poetry about them, right? Lovers delight in each other. You delight in your fiance, right? That's how God feels about us. God delights in his people. Or what about this one, Isaiah 54? Again, with the romance analogy, it's amazing how often in Scripture, especially the Old Testament, God uses marriage as an illustration of his love for us. Isaiah 54, 4 and 5 says, Fear not, you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, you will not be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth or approach of your widowhood, where you will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Your maker is your husband. You get it? Your maker, the creator, the all-awesome, encompassing God from whom you came, the source of all things, who rules the universe, who creates galaxies beyond what we can comprehend, is also your husband. The most close, intimate, knowing relationship that you would have, your spouse. God, who is so other, is also so close. You want another marriage illustration? Check this verse out. This is Isaiah 62. It says, No more shall you be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate. You shall be called my delight is in her. I love that. That's the, the Hebrew word, hepzibah. My delight. I was going to name my daughter hepzibah, but I knew too many kids would make fun of her in elementary school. But I just like it. My delight is in her. God delighted in her. 
Your land will be married for the Lord, there it is again, delights in you over and over and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Did you get that last sentence? You ever been to a wedding? I, lo- I do a lot of weddings. Um, there was one couple that um, went here. Nolan and Carrie McClure went here a number of years ago. They dated all the way through college. And then they dated through two years of grad school. And, um, I mean, six years. They waited to get married. Finally, one spring, they were able to get married. And I still remember this so vividly. This is a godly couple that just really... They dated really well as a Christian couple. But finally, after all these years, they were getting married. I remember Nolan standing up front like the grooms do. You know, the groom just kind of wanders in and just kind of stands there up front. No one pays attention to the groom. The bride, the doors (laughs) fling open and she comes down the aisle with flowers and a white dress because weddings are for brides and that's the way it should be. And everybody turns and stands and looks at the bride. I like to look at the groom. Do you ever look at the groom when he sees the bride the first time? I still remember at their wedding especially, I just saw in Nolan's face there was this look of, finally. It was just, you could just see it. For years he had wanted to marry this woman and it was fine. And he just was almost breaking down. It was finally here. And it was just kind of like, Get down here. I can't wait any longer. Do you know that's how God feels about you? As a groom rejoices over the bride, so shall the Lord your God rejoice over you. Because you're the people of God, a chosen race. That's how God feels about you. Hosea 2 says, I'll betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you to me to righteousness and injustice and steadfast love and mercy. I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness and you will know the Lord. I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. What does that passage sound like? Have we heard that before tonight? It sounds like 1 Peter 2. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see what Peter's doing? Peter's just echoing all these passages in the Old Testament to declare, you are the people of God. You are a chosen race. You are a chosen people. And that's how God feels about you. God did not choose you because someone twisted his arm. Nor did he choose us because we're so great. He chose us because he loves us. And his love feels like that. How do you like being the people of God? That's how God feels about you, chosen people, chosen race. But like this passage says, we are also a people for God's own possession. That's the second thing that he says, because right here in Hosea it says, I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And we will say, you are my God. And in the First Peter passage it says that we are a people for God's own possession. Right? And we must understand it's not because we were so good. We were not so beautiful. We were not lovely gems. We were covered in sin. And why is that so important? It's because of this. (laughs) Because God, if God did not love us because we were so good, he will not unlove us when we're so bad. We're chosen people. Chosen by the grace of God. You know what else we are? We are priests. Let's look at those four things again. We've talked about being a people for God's own possession, a chosen race. We're priests. We are a royal priesthood. Okay? Now, in the Old Testament, there were priests. 
And remember, the priest was a go-between between the people and God. So the priest would go into the temple and offer the sacrifices, and once a year the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the very inner part of the temple, and offer the sacrifice of atonement. All this is in the Old Testament. We won't get in there. But basically the priest is a representative between God and the people. The people are too sinful to approach God. But the priest has permission to go in before God and say, God, here's a sacrifice. Please forgive us. Please forgive me. Please forgive all these people out here. I'm just representing them. If you would just talk to me, I can confer that forgiveness on them. That's what a priest does, right? In the Old Testament, the priests had to do that. They stood in the place for the people. But now, there's no more need for that. Because we are all priests. Jesus, as the high priest, has offered up the sacrifice once and for all. And that's himself on the cross. The temple in the Holy of Holies gets ripped and separated. And now we have that relationship with God. Now we don't need any more priests. Peter says we are priests. We are a royal priesthood. Right? In other words, it's this. The sacrifice has been done. There are no more needs for any more sacrifices. Jesus did it. It's all taken care of. We now have access to God. And that is one of the reasons that Peter also says we are a holy nation. Let's put those four back up. Peter says we are a holy nation. Christ has made us holy. His blood covers us. There's no sin now on us to keep us away from God. So we don't need a priest. We can go straight to God. It's like we're priests ourselves. Now this is a doctrine in theology school that is called the priesthood of the believer. This is taught all over the New Testament. And it's this idea that we can go directly to God ourselves. You live this way, you just don't know it. Because when we were singing and worshiping tonight, you were just like, ah, God, I'm in your presence, I have access to you. But stop and think about it. You have access to God. The God of the universe, you have access to him. You can just walk right in. You don't need permission. You don't need a priest. You are the priest. You get to go right into the Holy of Holies because Jesus did it for us. We are a royal priesthood. Now, there is an incorrect doctrine of works righteousness. You read about it in Galatians and other places. And in the Middle Ages, um, there was this time because of a lot of corruption and skewed teaching in the church, it became very important that the church would have priests that would grant forgiveness to people. And sometimes these were called indulgences. And if you gave a certain amount of money, then the church would declare your sins were forgiven. Uh, you know, even today in some church traditions, you go to a confessional and you sit down and you confess your sins verbally to a priest. And depending on how strictly you believe that, it's either symbolic or you better not have a car accident between now and the next time you see the priest or you could be carrying some sins, right? This is, this is an inappropriate doctrine. This is not actually what scripture says. As priests, we do not need another human priest to go before us because Jesus has done it, right? We are a royal priesthood, which also means we are royalty. You are royal. We are a kingdom of priests. We are priests that are like kings with all the privileges thereof. You know, in the Old Testament, the office of the priest and the office of king in Israel were separate, but they come together in Christ. And now, evidently, it comes together in us in a certain way. And maybe this is because this, uh, this kind of status is bestowed on us by Jesus who says we'll reign with him one day. But stop and think about that. We're a royal priesthood. You're royalty. Hey, gentlemen, you're princes. Yep, 
Yep, you are. You're princes. You're in line for a throne. That's right. Ladies, you are princesses. You are daughters of the king. Okay, we're really segregated. It's like all men over here and all women over here. I'm just noticing that. I'm like, if I talk to the ladies, I turn left. If I talk to the men, I... y'all, we got to do better than this. We don't need to be afraid of each other, right? We're going to like do the one on one to one, one one thing later. You are a royal priesthood. We're royal. That's our status because God has bestowed that on us. This is who we are. Do you get it? Do you see what we have just unpacked? All these things that are true about us as the people of God. That's who we are. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. We are also a couple of other things. Let's keep going with our uh, Second Peter passage. Do we have, did I put verses 11 and 12? No, let's get past that one. I think I skipped that one already. There we go. We're going to pick it back up with verse 11. And Peter keeps on with this description, but it changes. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And here's the bad news. This description that Peter tells you about who you are continues. But this description now turns negative because here's who we also are. We are aliens and strangers. Or as another Translation says, we are sojourners and exiles. Go ahead and put the next slide up. Adding a couple more descriptions. Aliens, strangers, sojourners, exiles. What he's saying is, because all those things that we just said are true of us as the people of God, we don't belong here. We are aliens. We're strange. We don't fit. We don't belong we're aliens. What does it mean to be an alien? I, I think I know a little bit of what it means to feel like an alien. I lived overseas for 15 years, and I lived in a country in which foreigners, at least early on, were not very, um, were not very frequent, uh, were not very known. There weren't many foreigners there. I still remember when I first went to East Asia in the early years, there were places we would go in country that literally... For the whole time under communism, no one had ever seen a foreigner. And I still remember one day, I was on a summer mission, just like we talk about with you. It was a huge summer mission. There were like 60 of us. I remember we were doing a tour, and we were in the middle of the countryside and pulled into some teeny little town to go to the bathroom, and we all poured off this bus, like 60 60 white and black faces poured off this bus, and all of a sudden, there were hundreds of Chinese gathered around us, hundreds of Asians gathered around us in a huge mob, completely encircling us. We couldn't even get out, and they were all just staring at us. This is literally true, just staring. They'd never seen anyone before that did not look like them, only seen pictures or heard about it on the radio, and there we were, aliens. And I still remember, I remember being over there and making friends with lots of uh, lots of the people in the country, and I remember sitting, you know, sitting in a room, 
just me and them, and I'm trying to learn Mandarin, and I'm trying to speak it, and of course, I'm only getting every fifth word, and they're just kind of talking along, and then they laugh, and I don't know what they're laughing about, so I just kind of laugh, and then later on, I figured out they're actually laughing at me, and so great, now I'm laughing at myself, and now I feel stupid, but it was just like that. It's like I'm an alien. I don't even understand what they're talking about, and I remember this went on for years and years. Um, literally, I don't know why this was, but it was just the case in this country that everywhere we went, they, they would just state the obvious. And sometimes we would go to a place where they were not used to foreigners, and I would literally would be walking or biking down the street, and I would hear um, a Chinese person say, Lao Wai, Lao Wai, Lao Wai, which means foreigner, foreigner. For and literally, there's a person on the street pointing at me and yelling, foreigner, foreigner. Alien. I'm an alien. I don't belong there. I'm different. I'm strange. And Peter says, guess what? Christian, you're an alien. You're a stranger. You don't belong here. You're different. And sometimes that feels really uncomfortable. Now, even, even when I was overseas in Asia, I, I honestly, I, I, I was an alien and I was a minority. I don't think I feel, felt the full brunch of that because even so, as a kind of a rich white person, I was still pretty empowered. But there are lots of people even in our midst that feel like aliens on a regular basis who are minorities. Especially here at Georgia, at PWI, I just feel like there are so many among us who constantly feel like an alien, even among us. I bet even in this room, there are people who feel like an alien. And that, that just breaks my heart. That, that just, it shouldn't be, but it, it's hard to escape when you're a minority. And as Christians, we need to do well to love one another. Now, that's not exactly the kind of alien that, that Peter is talking about here, but that's kind of the meaning of what it is to be an alien and stranger. But see, here... As Christians, we are aliens in the world because we're different now. We're the people of God, and yet we live in a world that's not his kingdom. His kingdom is coming. So we stand out, and friends don't understand us, and people persecute us for it. So your friends think you're an alien and a stranger. They think that you're an exile. and They don't understand why you're not getting hammered downtown with them. And they mock you for it. They don't understand why you're not sharing a room and sleeping with your date on Mountain Weekend. And they don't understand why you don't use the F-bomb. Or they don't understand why you don't send risque pictures of yourself to your boyfriend. And they don't understand why you try to fight against looking at porn. Why would you do that? Isn't porn great? Don't you see? We're aliens and strangers. We don't fit. We look strange. People make fun of us. And, and worse, sometimes they hate us because sometimes our attempts to be holy and to be like God make them look bad and they hate that, even though that's not our intention. And Peter says we are sojourners. We don't belong here. We belong in another kingdom. In other words, in this world right here, y'all, we're just passing through. That's what he's saying. But one day, one day, we're going to... We're going to get to heaven and we're going to see home in the distance and all those promises that are just faith right now are going to come alive. But for right now, we're just sojourners. We don't fit. We're just passing through. That's who we are. That's what this passage describes. Applications. Let's finish with this. 
How will we respond? Here's our applications. Responding to who we are. Quit spending your life trying to earn God's favor. Okay? Stop it. You're a chosen people. You're a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. You don't have to earn his favor. You don't have to make him like you. He already delights in you. You know what? It doesn't matter how good you are and how much you keep the rules and if you sinned last week or not. I mean, obviously God doesn't want us to do that, but don't you understand he loves us. He delights in us. You don't have to like do all the things to make God love you. You don't have to perform. He already loves you. We don't need to earn his favor. We can relax. That's how God feels about us. Here's number two. And this gets more to the application that Peter teaches. Live out your pedigree, which means live a holy life. In verses 11 and 12, he says, Abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Abstain from sinful desires. Do you follow British royalty, any of you? Like Prince William, Prince Andrew, Princess Kate. She's a princess now, right? I, see, I can't keep up with all this. You know, Prince Charles, Queen all that, right? You follow the British royalty. You know, it's just not fair, life for them, you know? If British royalty, they're such a fishbowl. If they do something stupid or childish, it's like all over the tabloids, right? If we do something stupid or childish, hardly anybody knows. Like a few of our friends might be embarrassed. But they, if they do it, it's like the whole world knows that Prince Andrew did such and such. And it gets talked about by Oprah and everybody on daytime television, right? Why? Because they're royalty. Who else is royalty? Yeah, that would be us, right? Royalty. Royalty gets a lot of scrutiny. Well, we're royalty. We bear God's name. We have to live like it. Do you get it? Peter says right here that God's name gets tarnished through scandals. Think of scandals like Hillsong or Mars Hill or Things get in the news because Christians don't act like royalty like we should and just how that insults the Lord. So God calls us to be holy. He says, live such good lives among the pagans, people who don't believe, that when, even though they accuse us of doing wrong, one day God comes back and they have to admit, okay, actually they weren't sinning, they were doing what was right, right? We're called to be holy. We are not to behave like people in the world. We are not like that anymore. Don't you understand? That's not us. It's not that we have these laws and these rules we have to just keep up with. It's not this crushing burden of holiness. We're holy because all that sinful stuff, that's not who we are anymore. We're the people of God now. We're different. We don't do that. That's why we're called to be holy. We don't belong here. We shouldn't try to live like we belong here. And let me ask you this. Is there someone here tonight who you call yourself a Christian and you do a few Christian things but at the same time you're also doing the same old worldly things that mean you look no different from anybody else. Are you that person? Because if you are, the Lord has a command for you. Be holy as I am holy. Live such good lives among the people of the world that even if they accuse you of being wrong they would have to admit that it's wrong. Lord, make us a holy people. That's what this is saying. If you put on the garb of Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, and there is no difference between you and anybody else, you are not living out that identity. Don't you understand? That's not who we are. We're royalty. We're the children of God, a people for his possessions. We act differently. Just because that's our nature now. 
So for the rest of chapter 2, which we're not going to read, Paul starts what is called a household code. A household code. This is a very Greek writing structure. You see it in Ephesians and Colossians as well when Paul does it. But he basically goes through all the different roles a person might have in a typical Greek household. And he even elevates slaves or bond servants. It's a Greek word, doulos. It's not quite like American, European, African slavery. But it was an indentured bond servant. Um, and he says, whether you're that or a master, whether you're a husband or a wife, whether you're a parent or a child, all of you live a holy life. And that's what's in the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, which I'm going to let you take home and read this week to get ready for chapter 3 next week. And here's our last application. Declare God's praise. If this is who we are, then this is what we should do because we, as it says in 1 Peter 2.9, are a people belonging to God. Why? That we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That's what we do because that's who we are. We declare his praise. What do you say? You want to do a little bit more of that tonight? Let's do. Let me pray. Lord, we do want to declare your praise. Father, we are your people and we give you great thanks. And we declare our joy in being the people of God. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us to be yours, that we are your possession. Lord, thank you that you have chosen us and by choosing us, you made us gems. Thank you, Lord, that your delight in us is just that, that it is not feigned or forced. God, thanks that it rains down on us and we do not have to earn your favor. Oh God, what a privilege that you would be our God and we would be your people. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you have done to bring us together with the Father by your death on the cross that reconciles us to him, covering our sin, taking away our shame, and bringing us into the family of God. That is our great news. Lord Jesus, we worship and praise you that you have done it. And this is now who we are by your grace, O oh God. And for that, we worship you tonight. We delight in you as you delight in us. Amen.